as long as you're a passive investor, you have zero liability, like literally zero. So, and by passive, I mean what a syndication is. And again, in the syndications I'm in, I write a check, maybe I write a $50,000 check and I'm done. Like I'm not involved in any decision making. I'm not going and looking at the property or giving advice to the sponsors. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome again, everyone, to Migrate to Wealth. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure to bring my good friend, Mauricio. Mauricio, how are you? I'm doing good, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really looking forward to this. That's awesome. So Mauricio is calling us from SoCal. Uh, and we were just talking about how some places in SoCal do not have air conditioners. I don't know what that feels like. Orisha, thanks again for joining us, man. So as I remind to our listeners, every time we start the call with this conversation, the name of our show is Migrate to Wealth. The most important word there is not wealth, no matter how tempting that is. It's actually the word migrate, which essentially means transformational. And for our specific show, it means intentional transformation, transformation that we can design. Mauricio, before we get deeper into your story and, uh, and what you do, give us a little bit of introduction about who you are, what are you doing today, and then we'll kind of go from there. I'm an attorney by trade, so hopefully that doesn't scare anybody off, and don't hold that against me, please. I, I promise you I'm a nice guy, and I'd uh, love to have a beer with somebody like myself. But uh, I'm, an, I'm a securities attorney or a syndication attorney. I founded a company, a law firm, a Premier Law Group, and we focus 100% of our practice on real estate syndications, meaning we help clients raise capital for syndications, larger real estate deals, and making sure they're in full compliance with both federal and state securities laws. I'm currently sort of putting out a lot of content through that method and, um, you know, really have grown the law firm over the last, you know, we've been doing it since 2006. So what is that? Almost 20 years now that we've had the law firm. So that's kind of where, where I'm at today and what we do. It, uh, I think Mauricio is one of the few lawyers that actually smile and hold a conversation. Um, <laughs> that's why I thought bringing Mauricio, he's a, he's a good friend of mine and also as part of the same mastermind that we both are part of the same, same circles. So Mauricio, with that said, my friend, let's get it going. Why don't you share with us your migration, your transformation story to where you are today? What made you do what you're doing? Was it intentional? Was it accidental? Uh, help us give a little bit more insight into that. My story actually has two migration stories. It's sort of in, in two phases. So I'll talk about the first one, and both were absolutely intentional. The intentional now that I look back on it, when I was doing it, I didn't realize I was being intentional about it. So I, you know, I went to law school, honestly, because I didn't know what else to do, to be completely frank with you. <laughs> Not something I really wanted to do as a kid, but um, ended up going to work right out of law school. Kind of a dream of every attorney, every law student was to have a um, go work at a law firm. And so I worked at a really large law firm here in Southern California, in Long Beach, California. And what I realized, I mean, you know, I did litigation, I was in trials, did depositions, all that stuff, represented all the securities, you know, the big securities houses, you know, JP Morgan's, American Express, um, you know, Goldman Sachs, those kind of guys. But when they got sued, right, so I was defending them as a defense attorney. But I realized very early on, probably in your, you know, after the first couple of years when you're just, you know, you're into this new lifestyle, which is amazing, then you start realizing, wait a minute, I'm just spending all of my waking hours working. I get up in the morning and I go to the office and I work all day and I work all night and I come home and I you know, keep track of my time every six minutes and I go in on the weekends and I'm basically have no life. And yes, I'm getting paid really well and I have little really material things that you didn't have growing up. So it's nice to have a nice, nice car, live in a nice place. But after two or three years of that, you kind of get used to it, right? And so what really for me was the transformational part was 
you know, you go into the office on the weekends. That's just part of the deal. You go in on a Saturday, Sunday, and because the offices are, you know, closed officially, there's a security guard, you got to check in and all that, all that kind of routine. And I would always see senior partners, you know, who have been practicing for 20, 30 years that I knew had, you know, kids, three, four, five kids, and they were there at 7am on a Sunday. And I was like, this is not where I want to be in forget 20 years. I don't want to be, you know, having a family. And at the time I was single, but I didn't want to have a family and having to go into the office, you know, at 7am on a weekend. I, I figured once you made it as a partner, well, hey, now mm-hmm. it's coast to coast and you get all the, the first year attorneys to do all the grunt work. Right. And so I just realized at that point, in conjunction with, you know, reading that little purple book that I'm sure you and your audience mm-hmm. read, the Rich Dad Poor Dad, that all kind of happened to me at the same time, where I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I just kept reading it, just the context. And just, just I remember thinking, yes, that's right. There's more to this than the rat race. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to work nine to five or Monday through Sunday, you know, however many hours yeah. I was working a week and all just to be able to retire at 65. And then, you know, who knows if we'll even make it to 65, let alone, you know, be where we are. So, very, so I said, I got to get out of here. I wanted to really do something different. And that's when I was fortunate enough, after I read that book, that kind of led me to, you know, our good friends, the real estate guys, mm-hmm. Robert Helm Gray, got connected with them, you know, back in 2005. So that's almost, you know, what is that, 18 years ago, uh, went to one of their initial seminars and all that stuff. And then long story short, I ended up going, making the intentional decision that, hey, I'm going to go take a pay cut because, you know, they wanted somebody to come work for them in-house, be their sort mm-hmm. of general counsel and do all their legal work, which is great. But generally, you know, they don't pay any general counsel job, any private job doesn't pay as well True. as a law firm. So, but I made that intentional decision to say, hey, I don't want to be that guy in 20 years going to the office, uh, you know, when I'm in my 50s and 60s. So I made the decision to go work in-house for the real estate guys, uh, took a paycheck, but then had a much more fulfilling lifestyle at that point uh, because I wasn't, you know, keeping, I'm telling you, man, keeping track of your time six minutes at a time. I is, did not that, know that six enough. minute. I thought it was in one minute increments, man. Oh, uh, no, it's <laughs> Point one increments. Sometimes it's point two five, fifteen minute increments. But generally speaking, you know, it's point one. So you go, you go your entire day and your entire life keeping track, and you've got to hit a certain number of hours. That's why people go in on the weekends because you've got to hit. Let's just say you got to work, literally work, not just be in the office, but actually hardcore working. You know, maybe that's uh, you know one hundred and seventy, one hundred eighty hours a week. I'm sorry, a, a month, sorry, 180 hours a month. Oh, and so at the end of the month, that. if you're at 150, yeah. you got to go in on the weekends and put in another seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours to get to that, whatever that goal is. So, so anyway, that was my number one sort of, that's probably one of the most proud, when I look back on when people ask me, what are you the most proud of? I think mm-hmm. that was one of them because that was a big jump for me. Like I literally, you know, ended up quitting my job first because I, I was going to miss all these things that, you know, my goddaughter's christening, for example, I was going to miss. And then actually the real estate guys had their my first cruise that I went with her, Summit at Sea, I was going to miss that because I was just working and I was missing all the, you know, my buddy's trips to Chicago. I was missing all of this because of the lifestyle I had. So I actually quit that before I made the final decisions to move over to the realistic guys. I just jumped ship and I said, look, I'm going to take a sabbatical and worst case scenario, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll get another job. Worst case scenario, hopefully I'll find an in-house gig. And I was fortunate enough at that point that the realistic guys were ready to to receive me and uh, and mm-hmm. I ended up having going to work with them as opposed to having to go back to law firm. So anyway, that was my first big wow. sort of intentional migration. We'll jump into your second story as well, but I think there's so many golden nuggets in there. So help us understand kind of like, you know what, you saw a life that, of course you didn't plan because you didn't want to become a lawyer, but you picked a path, you were okay with the material comforts that the job provided you. Uh, however, the sacrifice that it would have required you to become the senior partner, you were not willing to take. 
So you started looking at an alternate path. Why real estate at that point? Why was it real estate, guys? Were you looking for real estate as a solution to something? I was always interested in in real estate. So before, when I was in college, before I made the decision to go to law school, I was following all the. This is now. Remember, this is twenty years ago. So maybe some of your audience don't remember these folks, but you know the Carlton <laughs> Sheets of the world, the yeah. Tommy Woos of the world, who you know, had those infomercials uh, in the you know yeah. you're a loser, you're this whatever. So I was into that, and I remember reading Carlton Sheets. So I was always interested in it. And I even remember when I was in law school, I, I had to make the decision. I said, look, if I'm going to go do this real estate thing and go flip out whatever Carlton Sheets was pushing, you know, contracts and like, assignments or whatever its thing is, if I'm going to go try this, I need to do it now before I go jump into those offer. And I ended up not doing it. But it was always interesting to me. And so when I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then Robert Kiyosaki did a sort of a radio ad for the real estate guys for a seminar they were doing down in Southern California, I jumped at it and went to, went to that amazing one-day uh, event called, I think it was called Profitable Real Estate Investing or something. And it was just an Not amazing, a- just full of, you know, no pitching, no run to the back of the room, it was pure content. And uh, I was enamored. And then, you know, when, when Russ approached me about doing legal work, I was like, man, this would be awesome. And so that's kind of how that went. No, they're great guys, man. So thank you. Thank you again for sharing that story, Mauricio. So let's take a step forward. So now you're with the real estate guys. Now, but I also know now you have a syndication company, a syndication law company where you help syndicators like myself formulate all legal documents, making sure we're compliant. What was that transition for you like from real estate guys to premier law? Yeah, that was sort of a natural, more of a natural transition. I mean, you know, they back then they had something similar, you know, now, now they have a, a mentoring club for syndicators. Mm-hmm. Back then they had a, just a mentoring club for real estate investors just in general. And I think they're, they're actually thinking about revamping that. But so I had all of these, these interactions with these members and I didn't really need, they were having an issue with setting up LLCs and they had all Got this it. legal work that they needed. And it's like, I was just listening to their, really their problems, which is they were paying all this ridiculous amount of money you know, for things that shouldn't have cost that much. So I slowly, you know, with the guy's permission, started helping them out. And that's kind of how it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And at some point I kind of outgrew the group. And so I started my own firm and then I kept the guys as sort of our VIP clients and can continue to help that, that group. But uh, it was literally, I think the analogy I was always using is that literally they were paying like $2,000 to set up an entity or something. Oof. And I just remember Oof. thinking, you don't need Michael Jordan to teach you how to shoot free throws. Like that was kind of no. my thing. It's like, you know, you just don't need that. You can go much more economical. And so anyway, that's kind of how it started. And then Got from it. there, it just kind of grew and grew and grew and, you know, to the point where we are today, which is pretty interesting. That's awesome. So Mauricio, let's, uh, let's now go deeper into what you do, right? Kind of like, that's also, I know my, my audience would be very interested in that. You know, as I am, sorry, go ahead, Mauricio. No, I was just saying, well, in the simplest form, what I like to joke is, um, you know, I help real estate syndicators stay out of jail. I make sure that they're doing everything fully compliant. And I do and so need that. Really I, do not, I do not want to spend time in the jail, man. Um, not for syndications, maybe the other reasons, but not for syndication. So, uh, so Mauricio, I think as, uh, as my audience is migrating towards, you know, a lot of my listeners are immigrants like myself and high tech, and they are nine to maybe midnight or whatever time frame, right? Nine in the morning till midnight, if, if there's any time or time break. So they right. don't necessarily have time, right? They're, a lot of them have jumped multiple exits on their previous employers. They're sitting on capital. It's right now deployed. A lot of that is deployed in the stock market, crypto, and other different assets. As I am trying to help them understand the world of syndication, now it may, may not work for everyone, but for those who choose to go that path of putting some part of their assets in the syndications, uh, be it real estate or something else, 
I think I want to help them. There's a mental block that I see, which is preventing them to migrate to there, right? And with that assumption, next few set of conversations, let's have around that. One of the biggest thing that I always asked is, is syndication legal, right? Is syndication governed by anything? Because I can look at public documents for a Apple if I'm investing in, but you're a syndicator, it's a private group. What do I miss out on? How do I make sure everything stays compliant and you're not gonna cheat me? You know, everything to the basis of it is fear-driven because they're afraid that will this term in, turn into a scam and will somebody run away with their, from the, with their money or not share the information for personal benefits of a syndicator or the group that's putting it together. So with that background, let's hit the first question, right? Is syndication legal? I mean, not only is it illegal, illegal, it's something that's very common, actually. And I, and I think that migration, you talked about a mental block, I think that's just purely a, a fear of the unknown. I think it's just something that because you're not aware of it, you're used to, you know, 401k plans, you're used to the stock market, you know, a little bit about crypto, but honestly, most people don't know anything about crypto. But on the other hand, somebody like me or a lot of my fellow, because I'm also a past investor, so not only am I an attorney uh, who represents syndicators, I've also, similar to your mm -hmm. to your colleagues, you know, I've got capital I need to deploy, and I just feel like syndication is just the best way for me to deploy that capital because I do get the leverage and all the benefits that we'll talk about in a second. But it is 100% legal. Um, it's got a lot of benefits over the public. So most people think of stocks and they go in the public markets, right? So they go buy, like I said, right. Apple stocks, and those are all heavily regulated uh, on the stock exchange and that and, and, and everything, you know, but that that also has some limitations, right? And so, you know, you don't get the opportunity to pick up the phone and call, you know, right. Bill Gates or, or, or um, you know, whoever's running the show, uh, Tim Cook. Uh, with syndications, it's a much smaller operation, obviously. This is not a publicly traded market. And so mm -hmm. there may only be, you know, on average, I would say every syndication maybe has somewhere between 10 and 20 investors, right? right? So it's a very right. private, small group, which is the nice, the nice thing about that is you get to have access, direct access to the management team. You get to have a little bit more, you know, I would say a say, because you are, you are still a passive investor. Most of your say is happening where, where the mental block is, which is the, the due diligence on the front end, because that's right. probably the most important thing. Me, even me as a passive investor, the biggest amount of work that I have to do before I make an investment is just doing my due diligence and research on the mm -hmm. sponsor. You know, wanting to make sure what's their track record, what's their experience, you know, have they done this before? You know, are they experts in this field, are they experts in the market? Uh, there's a lot of work that goes in on the front end. But once I write that first check, then if, assuming they do a good job, which they usually do, then the next one, I don't have to do that due diligence because I've already Correct. done my due diligence on the sponsor. But uh, it's 100% legal. There's actually, that's the reason I have to be honest with you, that's really the reason I have a thriving practice is because, you know, it is legal, but it is very heavily regulated. I think people should hear that because maybe people think that syndications is not very regulated uh, and it is very heavily regulated, which is why I have a job. So my job is to, you know, I, I've mastered the securities laws as it pertains to the private offerings. Securities attorneys to make sure that we're fully compliant with all the all the securities laws, which primarily, by the way, which is the most important part, is all the disclosures, right? So my job as an attorney, which actually helps, even though I'm helping my clients, obviously, by making sure they're compliant, we're really also helping the passive investor because my job is to make sure that I understand all the risks of the deal. And then my job is to disclose all those relevant, important facts in a document, which is called a private placement memorandum. That's where, a, you know, almost like a, the pitch deck that you used to have from a public company. This is going to be a hundred, you should be looking, you should be looking at a hundred, 150 page document that the syndicator is going to give you because all of those risks and all the disclosures and all the conflicts of interest and all that stuff is going to be 
located in those documents. In fact, it's the same level of disclosures that you would do as if you're actually registering what a Reg A is, which is a, sort of a mini registration with the SEC. And so it's, it's heavily regulated. Um, and, and as long as, as a passive investor, as long as you know that the syndicator is at least working with an attorney, right, a, a sophisticated securities attorney, you should be pretty confident that they are complying with all of the rules and regulations. I mean, the main issue, I think, with some of the scammers and some of the bad apples out there is because they actually do ignore the securities laws, right? Mm -hmm. They just go out and they just raise a bunch of money and they don't pay attention and they don't care, or maybe they don't know sometimes. But uh, if it's done properly, you're using an attorney and you're going to get, I don't want to say more, I would say almost just as much disclosures are you, as you're getting from a, an Apple Public or company. Google. Yeah. yeah. So, Marisha, you said it's regulated. Who regulates it? It's primarily the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. That's at the federal level. I always say you want to be compliant at both the federal and the state. So at the federal level, you have the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which is obviously part of the executive branch. Um, and there's a couple of statutes that were passed back in the 1930s, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Act of 1934. Those are sort of the main security statutes and then all the regulations. That, <laughs> imagine all the regulations yeah. over the past 90 years uh, and case law and all that stuff. Um, and then also the states potentially, well, not potentially, do regulate, um, although sometimes they get preempted from the Fed. So, so the federal, you know, as long as you're complying with the federal laws, the states have a little bit of say, but not, not a ton. But each state, so I'm in the state of California. So if you come and, you know, and, and I invest syndication, which is a security, the syndicator has to be concerned somewhat of the, the California, you know, Department of Corporations here, it's called it. But most states have a, a Department of Securities or something that regulates. And those state regulators are also, you know, looking over everybody's shoulder to make sure they're, they're not blowing any, any regulations. Got it. Let me just summarize what I heard here to make sure that I captured it correctly for my audience. So it's legal. Syndication is legal. Syndication is regulated by SEC predominantly at the federal level, at least. And then the most important thing for a passive investor to watch out to prevent themselves is really making sure that any syndicator they work with, they actually have a securities registered securities attorney on their, uh, on their team who is making sure everything remains compliance because that is as a security att attorney, is that your biggest job? to make sure that everything stays compliant, otherwise you can't put your name behind it? It's my only job, really. My only job is to make sure that clients are raising capital, accepting money from, from passive investors in, in full compliance with both federal and state securities laws. So 100%. What's the flip side of that, Mauricio? So let's just say a syndicator comes in, they're non-compliant. What, the, uh, what is the consequence of being non-compliant? Yeah, so when you're non-compliant, generally speaking, it means that you've you haven't registered your security because what happens when people raise money is they're selling securities. That's why the Securities and Exchange Commission is involved. That's why the securities laws apply. And so generally speaking, a security needs to either be registered like an Apple or Google registered with the SEC. That's basically going public or you have to have an exemption to that registration. Right. And so that's where we get involved on the exemption side. And um, depending on the exemption, obviously, we'll, we'll dictate what mm -hmm. you can and cannot do, cannot kind of say, who's eligible to invest. I mean, that's kind of part of what we do at the firm is trying to figure out what exemption. But to be fair, the only, the only difference really is that when you're investing in Google and Apple, like I said, they've registered with the SEC. And so they, the SEC's reviewed it and they've, they've sort of approved it. They've gone and spent years and years and years and millions and millions of dollars going back and forth. Yeah. With a private offering, it doesn't get reviewed or approved by the SEC. That's going to be on the owners, it's going to be on the attorneys and the uh, syndicators. 
But if there's ever an issue, then you can believe that the SEC is going to come knocking on your door and, and reviewing stuff. And the consequence is that you have an unregistered offering. So if you didn't register it, you didn't find an exemption. And so the consequence, generally speaking, is rescission, which means the investor will get all of their money back plus interest. So it's almost like the syndicator is guaranteeing the returns, which you don't want to do. Now, to be honest, if a deal goes south or if it ends up being a, you know something, either a scam or just, just hey, something, not every investment is, it goes the way everybody right. thinks it does. Uh, generally speaking, the syndicator may not have the funds. That's part of the due diligence you want to you want to do. So they may end up filing for bankruptcy, which is another sort of negative for the sponsor. Um, and then there's going to be penalties and fines, and you know they might be barred from raising capital ever again. I mean, jail is typically reserved for the Bernie Madoffs of the world, right? If you're right. out there intentionally scamming, intentionally defrauding, you know, intentionally doing things to hurt investors, then obviously jail time, I would say, is on the table. But most of the time. You know, it's just sort of incompetence sometimes or just mm -hmm. negligence. Like it wasn't really intentional, but they, you know, they were reckless or they, in our legal world, we use the reasonable person standard. So, you know, a syndicator needs to act like a reasonable, prudent syndicator would under the same circumstances. So if you fall below that standard and you did something that even if you didn't know, you should have known, that's kind of where it comes in. And so that's where the penalties really kick in is when somebody just screws up, but not intentionally, but just doesn't do a good job. So I mean, I see the consequences less on an investor. I mean, as long as they did their due diligence that uh, the syndicator they're going into is well capitalized to make sure should anything like that were to happen, they'll actually at least get their money back and hopefully on top of it, some interest. But really the person or individuals or teams that's going to take the most amount of hit is going to the syndication team. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen for a passive investor is that they lose all of their investment. That's right. it. It's right. not like there's any other penalty. I mean, you're not doing anything illegal to your point, if, if that's what, we're, what mm -hmm. we're trying to address. You're writing a check to somebody and worst case scenario is that they end up being a scam or you you know they run away with your money or they're right. the next level is they're incompetent or maybe the next level is you know you have a 2007 2008 and there's a, and so somehow you lose their money but that's the worst thing to be that's why these are all set up in what we call limited liability companies because your li your liability is limited to the amount of money i put in so when i write a check for fifty thousand dollars to a sponsor or syndicator i know that's the worst that could happen the worst, just like anything else i mean you right. know if you put your money in bear stearns and you got wiped out, right? So, so that's the maximum I could lose. Nobody's going to come knocking on my door. The regulators aren't going to come knocking on my door, or, other than to use me as a witness if something were to go, you know, if there's a mm -hmm. complaint or something, then they may come talk to me. But from a compliance standpoint, the worst that can happen to you is just, you know, and, and look, some of these investments are high risk, high reward, right? So that doesn't mean that it's anything, you know, nefarious. For example, the oil and gas industry is very known for like high risk, high reward. You mm -hmm. either hit the, you hit oil and you're going to double, triple, right. quadruple, right. 10x your money, or you're going to come up dry and you're going to lose all your money. And yeah. the only thing you've got to be aware of as a passive investor is just to make sure all those risks are disclosed in that document, in that private place memorandum, that PPM. And it's going to be disclosed. Hey, this is a high risk, man. You could lose all your money. We're just, you know, we're, we think there's oil there. We think we're going to hit it. But if we don't, you can lose all your money. So as long as the investor's going in with open eyes, they understand the risks. And, and for me, one of the more important things are the risk-adjusted returns. Mm -hmm. So yes, these are the returns I'm getting, but how risky is it? And that's just a determination right. that you get from reviewing the documentation, you know, asking all the right questions to the, to the sponsor, doing your due diligence on the sponsor. Um, you know, typically you, you, you want to you, you get to know the sponsor. I mean, we all like to do business with people we know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we get to know them well enough that you feel comfortable writing a fifty, a hundred, or two hundred and fifty thousand dollar check, which is um, kind of what the most common 
you know, dollar numbers. Right. No, I love that, Mauricio. Thank you again for sharing that. So I think let's, you, you hit something there, which I want to hone on on about library, right? So there is definitely an issue of fraud and, uh, and potential omission of the information. That's one aspect of it. But there's another aspect, right, which can prevent the migration to syndication. And one of the biggest one is going to be, what if a tenant, I have a multifamily property that's a syndication property that I want to invest in, a tenant falls down or something happens and that property is sued. What yeah. happens? What happens to me as a limited partner? And what's the exposure as a GP? Because any exposure to GP is also a risk that I need to evaluate. Can you help us identify, break down those two sort of exposed liability, potential liabilities? Yeah. As long as you're a passive investor, you have zero liability, like literally zero. So, and by passive, I mean what a syndication is. I, I write, again, in the syndications I'm in, I write a check, maybe I write a $50,000 check and I'm done. Like I'm not involved in any decision making. I'm not going and looking at the property or giving advice to the sponsors, right? They give me a report once a quarter and they tell me how it's going. They write me a check for the quarter and, and that stuff. So if you're a past investor from a legal standpoint, there's really potentially three liable parties, right? For sure, the owner of the property is going to be liable. And that's mm -hmm. the LLC, the limited liability company. But again, the whole point of a limited liability company is that the owners or the members are, are limited to what's inside of that limited liability company. So in this case, the property, obviously, so if there's a lawsuit against the property and the property owner gets sued and there's a million dollar judgment against the, the, the LLC, then whatever equity is in the property, assuming there is some, then then they'll be able to go after. And if there's a bank account with the LLC that, that has, then they can go after that. But the members, the owners, the shareholders mm -hmm. will not be. Think of it as a stock market. Like when Apple gets sued, they're not coming after you for the shareholders. So the same right. concern right. just applies. Anyway. If I own Google or I own whatever, then if that company gets sued or goes bankrupt, it's not affecting me. I just potentially will lose my, my shares and they go to zero, but I don't have any liability. Uh, the other... Uh, group that potentially could have liability is the general partner, which is the sponsor. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's primarily due because they're making all the decisions, right? So they're going to get right. sued, not because they own the property, because they don't. The LLC owns the property, but it's because they're making all the decisions and that decision led to whatever happened, right? So right. that's the other party. Right. And then the property manager will sometimes get thrown into the mix as well, because they're obviously the ones that are actually working day on to the day. property right. day to day. Right. And so if they were negligent and didn't do something or, you know, there was whatever the reason is, then... Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the members will never, first of all, they don't, this is one of the nice things about syndications, and this is where it comes in as well, is that unlike, um, unlike the stock market and public companies, th these are private. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that you own 2% or 5% of the syndication, other than obviously the sponsor and usually also the other investors will know. So there's 10 or 20 people that know you own it. But as far as the world is concerned, nobody even knows that you own this. And so even if they wanted to go sue you, they would have no way of finding your name right. on that LLC. You know, even if they wanted, even if they knew it was, you know, it was uh, Bill Gates who owned a percentage of the company and they wanted to somehow get Bill Gates involved just because he'll probably settle for some nuisance value, they wouldn't even know. And that's one of the nice benefits, probably one of those top 10 benefits is that anonymity and privacy, right? Uh, Correct. Nobody should know Correct. what you do. And that really helps from an asset protection standpoint because if they don't know that you own it, it's very difficult for them to come after you or even take it away from you. And you know, I think most of the folks who are worrying about liability are the folks who have a lot to lose. Right. Not that everyone does not, but there comes a point where the, if the financial loss that somebody may have through a liability or a lawsuit is going to be much bigger than that. So I think they are basically rephrasing that is it could actually serve as a major asset protection 
uh, vehicle as well for individuals who actually want to make sure that they don't expose themselves or their holdings that may show up on an asset search should a lawyer do anything uh, on, of that nature. Yep. There's no possible way for a, a plaintiff's lawyer to do a search. They do an asset search, they're going to find your bank accounts. Yeah. They do an asset search, they're going to find your brokerage accounts. They're going to know that you own stock in Apple, whatever. Or they do a search, they're going to know if you own homes in your personal name. They're going to know all that stuff. But if they do an asset search and you own a 3% interest or even a 20% interest in an LLC that owns the property, there's mm -hmm. just no way for that to come up in any type of asset search. And uh, Maurice, is that also true? I know we can get into technical details of that and we can talk for like maybe weeks on that. Yeah, but right. a very high level answer on what about the GP side? Are they exposed? Uh, they're holding in that property. Will that show up if not done correctly, I'm assuming? Well, the manager, so there's ways to even get into the weeds here, but generally speaking, when you set up a company, a limited liability company, an LLC in a state, generally they require that you put down who the manager, who is mm -hmm. actually running the company. And so the manager is going to show up either on the public record. It's going to be on the public records, whether you can see it on a web search or whether you have to go actually physically go down to the, uh, the secretary of state to actually pull the docs. Right. But that information is going to be public. However, the way we structure all of these, and generally speaking, you always want to do this, if that makes sense, generally always, um, <laughs> is that that management, that manager is actually also a company, right? So when right. you're actually pulling that report from the state and you see, okay, here's ABC LLC, and it's managed by ABC Management Group LLC, right? So even though it's public, right. it's very you can structure it in such a way that it's virtually impossible for me to know you know, who even runs ABC management group or who owns it. Now, the owners would just be the GPs because obviously the investors would not, not own the management company. But the main exposure for the general partner is honestly with the bank. So when you do these larger deals, you're going to get a loan from a bank. Mm -hmm. and it'll say Wells Fargo or whoever. And they're usually going to have, you know, some of them are recourse. So, the, you know, right. they're going to be on the hook for the loan. Uh, even if it's a non-recourse, they're going to have to qualify and have enough, enough net, net worth to get the loan. Usually the sponsor or the group mm -hmm. of sponsors and they need to have enough net worth collectively to cover the amount of the loans. So if you're getting a $3 million loan, everybody has to have $3 million in net worth combined. And then maybe harder is they have to have a 10% liquidity requirement, meaning they have to have, if the loan's $3 million, then $300,000 needs to be in liquid cash, bank right. accounts, securities, crypto, probably not if crypto works on it. But so that's another, so that's where it becomes, because if the property goes, you know, it doesn't turn out well, and especially if it's something bad that you did, you could be personally liable for the loan. You're not going to be personally liable for the property because you're not a member of the property, but you're making decisions and those decisions lead to losses. You're going to get sued. You're definitely going to get sued. <laughs> right. Well, they can do the anything on that. That's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. But not the passive investors. Like I said, I've invested, I probably currently have 10 syndications out there myself as a passive investor and I have zero issues. You know, that somebody could go in there and get shot or a balcony. The worst ones I've seen, the balconies might collapse and kill yeah. a bunch of kids. I don't lose an ounce of sleep from a liability standpoint, right? So, correct, correct. So I think there's, uh, you know, in terms of the liabilities, essentially this is perfect way to hide any uh, hide behind the public records to make sure that your name doesn't show up at all. And even in the event of an unfortunate event, because you're a limited partner, your exposure is essentially not even minimized at zero. Right? It is zero. Another quick point, as you mentioned on the anonymity. If you're a real estate investor, right, there's ways for you to own property. I mean, I recommend everybody own property through an LLC. Nobody should be owning a property in their personal name. Yeah. But even if you do all, everything possible to you know, set up with LLCs, and so there's really no way for somebody to really understand that you own the property, where they'll always get you is the loan. 
because the loan, the bank's not going to lend it to a company. They're going to mm-hmm. lend it to, you know, to Mauricio Raul. And so right. when I pull that right. deed, that's going to show up, you know, my personal name, unless I can buy it for cash. If I'm lucky enough to be able to buy the property for cash, then yes, I can set up anonymity and LLC and nobody will know that I bought it or own it. But uh, if I need a loan on it, your name's going to be on yeah. it. <laughs> I think, you know, that's actually a very, very good perspective, right? Because a lot of active investors forget the amount of exposure they have especially with a recourse loan, right? Not just that the bank can come after their personal assets, but also the exposure they have, they're signing their name on the loan. Now that's also probably true on the syndication side, not probably, it is true on the syndication side as well. However, me, me being passive, if I am very concerned about my already, like somebody's in the medical practice, right? You already know they're already right. highly liable. Like their liability is through the roof to, to begin with. You gotta ask yourself a question, is the additional liability worth it if I were to become an active real estate investor? The answer may be yes or no, but at least you're making that judgment call with some data behind it. You're not necessarily saying, I didn't know. Yeah, and if you're a high paying professional, especially a doctor who's got high liability, I mean, the amount of work that you have to do just from an asset protection standpoint, because you're a high liability and because you're in real estate and because it's just you or a couple of partners, you know, we don't do asset protection anymore, but my good friend, Kevin Day, who does, does uh, yep. those structures are complicated. So, and they're expensive. So yes, you're saving something on the syndication side, but then yes, you've got to worry about, you know, if you're doing it on your own, just the liability part of it and, and putting together a structure that it's not even guaranteed to work. It just maximizes your your chances of either settling or you know mm-hmm. not losing at all if you get into a huge uh, lawsuit. That's why, like, I'm busy with my practice too. I've got the law firm. I'm, I'm doing that stuff. Being able to just write a check and, and rely on the uh, on the expertise and the leverage, get all the tax benefits, can do everything that I all that benefits that I get without having to lift a finger and have somebody else. I mean, that's the ultimate leverage for a passive investor. You're that leveraging is. their experience, their time. There are tax benefits that just don't make any sense if you're buying a single family or a threeplex or a fourplex. But when you buy a hundred unit apartment building, I get all those economies of scale, even though I may only have 50 grand in the deal or hundred grand in the deal. And I only own, you know, one and a half percent of the deal. I get all that, those economies of scale and those tax benefits and everything else. Yeah. I think you get all the benefits and then some plus zero work, right? Um, if you were doing that's active my part, it's that's ultimate part. leverage, ultimate yeah. leverage for me, leverage of time, which to me is the most important thing. So I get to leverage my time by using, you know, folks like yourself. I don't have to spend my, all of my waking hours learning the market, learning the property, learning the loan products, you know, what are the risks and you know, all that stuff, which is a, you know, a full-time gig. Yeah. So Mauricio, how do you look at your syndications? Right? So I know you, you mentioned you are a passive investor as well. When you're evaluating a deal from your perspective, because you definitely have seen a lot of good ones on the bad ones, yeah. um, given that you're formulating documents for everything, um, how do you evaluate them? I start with the sponsor. I mean, that's probably, you know, I put together something, I think you've seen it, like the top 10 questions yeah. to ask. Yeah. First question is probably 80% of it. Uh, and that is, you know, what is the level of, you know, I look at the experience of the sponsor, whether it's syndication or otherwise, I, you know, I look at it, at their experience, not only in real estate, for example, which is a very broad term, but are they experts in multifamily or mobile home parks mm-hmm. or self-storage? Mm-hmm. I mean, all these different asset classes require a different type of expertise. Is my, the person I'm looking at or their team, somebody on their team, you know, maybe it's a mobile home park deal. Right. Maybe these are really successful syndicators that have been doing multifamily all these years, and now they're switching over to, mul- to mobile home parts. Well, do you know anything about mobile home parts? Correct. Do you know, you know, how well do you know the market? You know, other investments in that market. Budget? I want to know about your team. Uh, I want to know whether they've gone full cycle or have they've gone through bad times. You know, do they know this side of the street? Like all that stuff. 
and it's sometimes a little bit of a work. And luckily, I get to go to all these conferences and I get to meet mm -hmm. people. Uh, but I, if you're not going to, well, first of all, if you're not going to conference, I would recommend you do that. Otherwise, I would literally, the first time, I would get on a plane and go meet the, the sponsor in the person team. and their team yeah. and their operations, yeah. all that stuff. And so I do all that work on the front end. And then once I'm done with that, and I, you know, obviously, then when an investment opportunity comes in, it does it meet my personal investment philosophy? Is mm -hmm. it the asset class that I'm looking at? Is it in a market that I like? I mean, I, I do. Just because of the course of my business, I've got my thoughts on that. And then finally, once I make the investment, then it's all great because now I don't have to go do all of that again. I'm just literally looking at every single investment, you know, individually. I don't have to worry about the team because I've already done all that due diligence. Now I'm just looking at, you know, when I'm given the opportunity for a property, it's honestly primarily the market. Like, is this in a market that I like? Right. And generally, right. because you're doing the due diligence on the sponsor, you're going to you're going to be probably aligned. Like, if I like the Orlando market. I'm probably going to go find sponsors that are, are in that are in the Orlando market. So that's where they're right. doing. But if if I like the Orlando market and they suddenly come back and say, hey, I, you know, I've got a deal here in, in Nashville, Tennessee, because it's the next big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I may not be, you know, I may, I may have to go do my own due diligence on that market right. and make sure I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. Now, I love that. You know, uh, what you said is essentially counterintuitive. I knew it was counterintuitive to me because I would always start with a deal first, right? When, when I was starting out, I'm sure, I mean, I see a lot of investors doing the same exact stuff that send me the deal and then I'll look into what the deal is about and the five, 10, 20, 30 discussions that are happening with the sponsorship is not about the sponsorship team, but it's more about the deal itself, which you and I know with yep. your experience and me being active and passive as well, no matter what business plan is presented, very high likelihood is going to change because uh, we can control as a sponsor what we can, but there's a lot of things that we can't control. And those uncontrollable factors somehow at some point will influence a decision that's going to require us to pivot from our business plan. Yeah, I mean, Robert Helms, you know, he's the one that taught us this. There's really four pillars, right, for real estate investing, and the property is the last one. It's the yeah. most interchangeable one. So the first one is, is your understanding what your as an investor, what your personal investment philosophy is? You know, is that are you into this asset class or that asset class? Are you looking at you know, do you want to stay close to your house or you know, are you national or worldwide? Is it hotels? All that stuff, and then you want to make sure that you're aligned with the sponsor. The next one's the market. The market mm -hmm. is the is really the next big thing, and, and you want to do your due diligence on the market. Then it's the team. Once you've picked a market, like or let's say I like Orlando. Okay, well, I got to go get a, assemble a team in Orlando, boots on the right. ground, you know, brokers and real estate agents and, you know, attorneys, real estate attorneys, all that stuff. And then after I've got all those things, my personal investment philosophy is aligned with the sponsor, my market's selected, my, I know there's a team in there or I, if I'm putting together a team. And then you go find a property, right? And the property is the most interchangeable piece. And so that's it's why it's probably the do, easiest one to find. Right. So once you've done your due diligence and you, you align with the sponsor, you're in a market that you already like, they've got the team. In your case, it would be also the syndication mm -hmm. team. Then it's like, okay, well, now you know, kind of know what I like. Let, let, you know, if I see something that's in a multifamily in the 50 to 100 unit range in Orlando, then we'll take a look at it. Right, right, right. Mauricio, this is amazing, man. I know you and I can talk about syndication. It's a topic I love and I live and breathe. I know you do that same. Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm not that hard to find. You can literally Google me, but uh, I've got a YouTube channel that I would recommend checking out under my name, LinkedIn. I'm active, but probably the best way is my Facebook community. I have a, a syndication community called the Real Estate Syndicator Community, and that's a Facebook group, and you can find that at mauricioraul.com forward slash FB group. MauricioRaul.com forward slash FB group for obviously for Facebook group. Perfect. Well, thank you. And I spent all my time in there. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you can find outside of your um, 
outside of your 0.1 increments. Now, I think this is good. I will be sure to include that in the show notes, Mauricio. Uh, let's actually switch gears here. Uh, so Mauricio, you, I mean, you of course have a lot of life experience, right? Good, bad. You've seen a lot of different things. If you were to go back to your 20 year old self, one thing that you and I agree upon and my audience agrees upon is migration is imminent. It's going to happen. You like it or not, change coming. It's better you can design the change yourself. So what would be some of the insights that you share? One of the top two or three insights with your 20 year old self to make sure their migration into the transformation that they're looking for becomes easier and more welcoming rather than resisting it. Yeah, I mean, I would go back, you're saying if I'm 20 years old now, so this is going to be a long time ago, um, you know, I think back then I was I was into personal development, and so I was already sort of setting goals. But mm -hmm. one of the things that Robert Kiyosaki taught me, which took, I mean, I heard about it when I read the book, you know, 15, whatever long ago, 18 years ago, but this whole idea, and it kind of grows with the syndication, it's all on the financial side, but if you can get to financial independent as fast as humanly possible, if you can migrate to chasing the money, working mm -hmm. for money, and instead of having the money work for you, the faster you can get there. And that doesn't mean you've got to be rich. And you know, you can literally, especially when you're in 20, you can literally live off of, you know, $4,000 a month or something, right? You can live right. in your, your roommate, and you got a beat up car and you know, whatever. But if you can get to that point where you've got enough income coming in, then that frees you up that then allows you to go migrate not only does it give you the time freedom that I think most of us are, are really craving, but then it gives you that opportunity to go take some risks. Mm -hmm. I interviewed actually Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets uh, on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, that's what allowed me to do the Bigger Pockets thing is because I had enough money from all of my real estate investment. It wasn't a lot of, I think it was like $3,000 a month, but that was enough that he didn't have to worry about money. So he was able to go take this right. risk four bigger pockets and basically work for free. It wasn't free, but a very little money. Wouldn't have, if he had a nine to five job, he was no chance he would do it. So right. I understood the concept of the financial freedom and, and making your money work for you through investments, through syndication, through real estate. But uh, it took me a good 20 years for that thing to sink in. And so if I could somehow convince my 20 year old to do that, not in 20 years, that would be, that would be a big yeah. uh, migration because then I'd be able to do earlier what I wanted to do. You know, I think it's interesting you say that because I think I see a lot of folks confusing financial independence with being rich, right? I'm sure there are different levels of financial independence. I think the one that you and I are talking about is essentially whatever your basic, you may not be able to take $100,000 of vacation. That's not the independence we're talking about. What we're talking about is there's food on the table, there's clothing, the basic necessities, yeah. and you are living you're living your life and you're not suffering. You're not struggling. Like that's the level of freedom we're yes. talking about because what it does beautifully thing and it's done to me as well as it gives you the mental space to think. People say that, oh, my job's only yeah. four hours, five hours, six hours. It's not because you're waking up thinking about your job. You're taking a break thinking about your job. You're on a vacation thinking about your job. It occupies this beautiful piece of it. equipment that's been provided to all of us. We're not able to use it because it's already doing something else. A hundred percent. The mental thing is huge. Cause even for me now, it's like, I may have more time, but then there's still the, the mental may, may just freeze up the mental part. I always, you know, most people think of financial independence as sort of one of the final ladder rings or rungs of that ladder. Like I, I'm going to get all the way to the top. I'm going to be financially independent. What I'm referring to is making sure that's your first rung. Like right. you got to get that first rung right. of financial independence as soon as possible. It doesn't mean you're retiring. It doesn't mean you're going to go on the beach and then you're going to be a bum. 
It just means you don't have to worry about paying your bills and your rent and your electricity right. bill and your car payment or whatever. And then you can start working up that ladder from there on. The faster you can do that, if you can do that in your 20s, you're going to be way better off, you know, when you're 40 and 50. You, you, first of all, you'd be doing something you love as opposed to, you know, working for a paycheck. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. So, Mauritian, now we've talked about a lot of different things, right? We talked about your story. We talked about how you think about syndication and kind of like the in and outs of the syndication in terms of the legal exposures that we may be there. We talked about you telling your 20-year-old self some life lessons that you have learned along the way. Let's take a level up, right? Because, you know, all of us do things. I know you believe in that too. It's a purpose, mission-driven life. Because in the end, um, we can all make money. We can make a lot of money, a ton of money. But if you're not fulfilled, if you're not adding value to the communities that we live in, it's probably going to be a very empty success. Eventually, you're going to miss something in there. So what is, with that backdrop, what is your wish and desire for the humanity to migrate towards if they were to do it more intentionally? That's a tough question, uh, Saki. I mean, we could, there's so many different, you know, I think people would be in general way better off if they thought for themselves. I feel like everybody is just trying to keep up with the Joneses. This is the way mm -hmm. things have to be. I've got to have my 401k. I've got to go to school. I got to go to college. I got to go do this. I got to, I got to work till I'm 65. Hey, I got to work right. nine to five. This is just the way it is. And that's why that rich dad, poor dad book was so instrumental for me. I kind of knew that, that that wasn't the way it should be, but then having Robert, you know, pounded in my head was great. So I think if people could just be a little bit more open to things that are not sort of the norm, and I would, being trapped, I think people would be able to migrate a lot easier, or at least be open to migrating into, I, I think, a much better place and not, not being, you know, waking up one day, you know, being 65, not having been fulfilled, not doing the things they yeah. wanted, not being able to attribute, because one of the beautiful things about getting to that financial freedom at a younger age, everybody thinks it's all about money, but it really is fulfilling your, freeing up your time so that you can then go contribute. If you want to go, you know, uh, volunteer at the school, you know, you've got time to do that. You want to go help here, right. you can do that. You want to go work over here, you can do whatever you want. But uh, I think if people just start, stop, just didn't do what the norm and the Joneses do, then I think that would, would help a ton. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm not, my life philosophy is remain curious, remain student, right? Kind of like just continue growing. And want to make sure is that you're, and the biggest way to do that is, think. One of my previous managers in my previous companies told me one thing that stayed by with me is that one of the hardest thing in the life is to think. And one of the most important thing in the life is to think. And to your point, it's a very important skill. And most of us are gifted with a beautiful brain. We just choose to use it in a different place than uh, focusing on things that we really want to do. But on that heavy note and high note, uh, Mauricio, Thank you again for jumping on uh, the session with us. I know I love talking to you. I'll, I draw a lot of value in our conversations. I'm sure our audience too. We really appreciate you being here. I appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.